Happy day, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to share with you my latest travels, tips, insights, and inspirations on the air. If you're joining for the first time or for the first time in a while, the focus of my podcast is information that I share on my website blog. So how do you find my blog? From your favorite web browser, navigate to my website, www.copperrangellc.com, and click blog. It's on the left side of the front page, or you may need to click a drop-down menu if you access my site on a mobile device. My blog posts have the great photos behind the stories, so you definitely want to make a stop to my webpage so you can check those out. Also on my website, www.copperrangellc.com, you can also view all my images, you can learn about me, and you can keep up with my art show schedule. And there will be art shows this year despite the pandemic. At my art shows, it's a great way to shop my photography in person and to meet me. You can also shop safely and easily online. Just click the buy icon on any photo and you'll be on your way to an easy and safe shopping experience and become one of my collectors. In today's podcast, I'm going to provide a sort of soup to nuts description of the red-shouldered hawk. Um, This particular blog post and podcast has been inspired by an incredible occurrence of an active red-shouldered hawk nest right here in Washington, D.C. I have amazing photos and video on my website of this young hawk family of two active parents and three young hawks. You definitely want to go check those images out on my website and the video as well. You can also see this on my Instagram page as well. In the podcast and in my blog, however, I'm going to go beyond the photos and videos that I've already posted and describe some of the incredible characteristics, adaptations, and lifestyle of this particular raptor species. I'm also going to discuss the troubling risks and threats that this bird faces. And this is really important information because there's things that each one of us can do to reduce those risks, and we can also help educate others and things they can do to reduce the risks. So the red-shouldered hawk is one of the most beautiful and talkative hawks in the United States. If you've been fortunate enough to have one come across your path, you might just fall in love just like I have. My first encounter with the red-shouldered hawk was seeing one and then a pair together perched in a tall tree in my backyard during a really cold day at the height of winter about five years ago. I had never seen anything like this before. You know, and although I live in a big, the big metropolitan city of Washington, D.C., you know, we have a lot of large tree canopy or what's called urban forest, and we're adjacent to Rock Creek National Park. So the habitat is fairly good for red-shouldered hawks, but I had never seen one before this period uh, five years ago. So it was really for me the beauty of these birds um, that I could see through binoculars that inspired me to learn more about raptors and actually how to photograph them. So this past April, when I came across the red-shouldered hawk nest just a few miles from my home, now over two years into my photography business, it was really kind of a heaven-on-earth moment for me. So while the red-shouldered hawk is really a stunning raptor to photograph and to watch, 
Um, I want to take it a little bit further and help us learn something about this really uh, special species and um, beautiful bird. So red-shouldered hawks are raptors or birds of prey. You know, and eagles and owls are also raptors too. So what this obviously means is that there are different categories or types of raptors, each with their own behaviors, color, sounds, and lifestyles. The red-shouldered hawk is in what's called the Buteo class of raptors. That's spelled B-U-T-E-O. And experts uh, differ in their precise descriptions of the size and characteristics of red-shouldered hawks. And they tend to give ranges on the height, weight, and wingspan. But in general, a red-shouldered hawk may be anywhere from 15 inches to 24 inches long. They weigh only 1 to 2 pounds, and they have a wingspan of 38 inches to 42 inches. And I really want to emphasize this issue of their weight, because many people tend to see these birds as big, large, heavy, and that sometimes kind of makes them intimidating. They're actually very, very light, and, you know, the... Uh, because they have to fly, that's part of the reason why they are so light. Like other raptor species, including bald eagles um, and some owls, uh, the female is larger than the male, and there is no color difference between the sexes. So the female is larger than the male. So if you were actually at this nest, or at, at a red-shouldered hawk nest, and you saw two parents there and one was bigger than the other, that's the female. Um, red-shouldered hawks get their name from the reddish brown feathers on their upper wings. These feathers give the appearance of having red shoulders. It's really more of a kind of a rusty brown color, but they've become known as red-shouldered hawks, so that is what it is. So where do red-shouldered hawks live? Uh, red-shouldered hawks live on the east and west coast of North America. The eastern population lives from southern Canada to Florida and into eastern Mexico and west to the Great Plains. Part of the eastern population is migratory. In the west, the species lives from Oregon to Baja, California. The western population does not migrate. If you've ever traveled to Florida and you've seen the red-shouldered hawks down there, um, you know that there's actually a difference in color between red-shouldered hawks in Florida and those further north which are darker in color. I actually have some images on my website, um, the blog post showing these color variations. Um, a few years back, I traveled to uh, um, an Audubon sanctuary in um, the Naples area of Florida, where they sort of have kind of a resident red-shouldered hawk and um, traveled to some other areas in the, in the Everglades. And the photos of the um, red-shouldered hawks you can see are distinctly different in color than the ones that we have up here. They're all really spectacularly beautiful in any case. So red-shouldered hawks are uh, considered forest raptors, and they tend to live in forest, forested areas with uh, open subcanopy and a nearby water source. So open subcanopy just means that there's pretty, usually very tall trees, and the area underneath the tallest part of the tree is open and allows for them sort of moving through it and also would allow for them to see anything below the canopy that they're in. So uh, red-shouldered hawks are strictly carnivores like many other raptors. They are what's called a diurnal raptor, which means they hunt during the day and they're really adapted for daytime hunting. 
They feed on many types of prey, including amphibians, reptiles, birds, and small mammals, including voles, chipmunks, rats, mice, and possibly rabbits and squirrels, depending upon their size. Um, in the amphibian and reptile category, frogs and snakes. Crayfish are actually an, import, an important food source, particularly in the southeastern U.S., um, for red-shouldered hawks that are hunting in that area. Red-shouldered hawks are chiefly what's called a perch hunter, but may sometimes hunt while in flight. So a perch hunter means they're sort of uh, parked themselves on a tall tree in an area and are watching, as opposed to catching prey in midair. Um, so let's talk about the amazing vision these birds have. This is a really, um, really a fascinating issue, and it's such an incredible adaptation for raptors. So um, exceptional vision is a key element in helping raptors locate and track prey, and there are a few features of the raptor eye that contribute to its remarkable vision. First, like many other birds, raptor eyes are actually very large in relation to the size of their skull and their body mass, and when you get close up to a, one of these birds or you see a very, very close zoomed-in image, you, you'll, you'll appreciate that. And second, even though raptors can't move their eyes around like us humans, they have extra bones in their neck that allow them to move their whole head around. And as many of us know, some raptors like owls can rotate their heads as much as 270 degrees around. That's sometimes kind of freaky for people to see, but it's, a, it's, a, it's um, really cool and it's a great adaptation for them. And hawks can rotate their heads almost all the way around as well. So the third point about raptor vision is the forward placement of raptor eyes gives them really good binocular vision, and this allows really accurate judgment of distance. So if you're a perch hunter and you're going after small, fast prey, having really good distance vision is critical to survival. So um, last and perhaps the most remarkable refinement to raptor vision is the ability to see in the ultra violet light range. So I'll kind of walk through this slowly because it's it's a little technical but it's really an incredible adaptation and sometimes you know, people wonder how do they see these little mice and how do they catch these little mice and rats and voles and and other really tiny things. How does that happen? So this is one way that it happens this really incredible vision adaptation that they have. So rodents, like many other species, actually use scent as a communication mechanism. So for example, they use it to mark their territory and for mating and for reasons like that. So in species like these rodent species, um, long scent trails become obvious signs and pointers to where the animal has been. Scent marks of small rodents become visible when the markings absorb part of the UV radiation present in sunlight. So research has shown that scent marks left by voles, who urinate almost constantly, are also detectable by raptors, and particularly kestrels in this study that I'm referring to from reflected UV light. So this ability to perceive reflected UV light is particularly useful in the spring before the scent marks are covered by vegetation. And again, spring is when many birds, but including our red-shouldered hawks and other raptors are nesting. So for raptors who are hunting in open 
grassy areas, this means that they can rapidly scan large areas in a short period and perceive rodents by simply following the ultraviolet light trails that point to their movements and possible whereabouts. So to put this really in the simplest terms, which is sometimes the best way, the best way for us to remember things is just remember that raptors, including red-shouldered hawks, can see the pee trail of animals they're hunting. And that's how they're able to see and detect these very tiny um, rodents. So when do red-shouldered hawks grow up and start their own families? Red-shouldered hawks become sexually mature at one or two years of age. Red-shouldered hawks, like other hawks, are monogamous and mate for life. However, if one of the pair dies, uh, the surviving hawk may seek out another mate. Mating typically occurs between April and July. Red-shouldered hawks are particularly vocal prior to incubation and they call repeatedly while engaged in courtship flights. They also call repeatedly um, among the nesting pair while they're feeding their nestlings as well. And that's one of the easiest ways to detect uh, the presence of red-shouldered hawks or even a nest or somewhere in their territory when you hear them calling. So the red-shouldered hawk pair will build a nest of sticks, which could include moss, leaves, and bark. The nests are typically built at, the, at a crook of the main trunk in deciduous trees more than halfway up the tree, but within the canopy, and again, within the canopy meaning where the leaves are. And if you actually take a look at the images on my website, you'll see that this is precisely the type of habitat that this particular uh, pair in Washington, D.C., where the, that they have built their nest in. Um, the female will lay three or four spotty lavender or brown-colored eggs, and females will nest once per year, but they may lay a second, what's called a second clutch of eggs if the first is destroyed. So uh, the red-shouldered hawks grow up very fast, Incubation takes between 28 and 33 days, so about a month after the eggs are laid, they will begin to hatch. Um, the first chick, and the, the technical term for a hawk chick or a hawk baby is an IS. It's spelled E-Y-A-S, pronounced I-S. Um, so the first chick, or IS, hatches up to a week before the final one. The female has the primary responsibility for incubating the eggs while the male hunts, but sometimes the male cares for the eggs and the nestlings. Adults most frequently will bring back mammals to feed the nestlings, and, and usually it's a vole, a chipmunk, a rat. Um, sometimes they'll be frogs, sometimes they'll be birds. So the young will then fledge the nest when they're between 35 and 45 days old. So. You know, between the time the eggs are laid and the time that they begin to fledge, and fledge means that they're going to sort of maybe hop out of the nest onto a nearby branch. Um, that's what we mean by fledge. Um, it's, you know, the time period is, you know, about two months, just a little over two months uh, from the time they're laid, the eggs are laid to, to the time that they fledge. And so they grow up incredibly fast. So they're going to fledge the nest when they're between 35 and 45 days old, and they'll try to catch their own prey, and that's usually an insect. Um, however, the young hawks will continue to depend on their parents until they're 17 to 19 weeks old, after which they may start to catch vertebrates, and then the young hawks could actually stay near that nest area until the following mating season. 
So now on to the part that we don't like to talk about, but is uh, a fact of life for wildlife. Uh, a lot of young wild birds don't survive. Only half of red-shouldered hawk chicks survive the first year, and few will live to 10 years. The nesting success rate is 30%. Plus, red-shouldered hawks face many predators and risks at all stages of life. For those that survive their first year, red-shouldered hawks can live to be 15 to 19 years old in the wild, with one report of a 26-year-old hawk. Don't we wish that for all of them? So let's turn our attention to some of the risks that the red-shouldered hawk faces. And this is uh, one of the most important parts of the blog post that I wrote, as well as this podcast. So bear with me. Um, this is important information, and it's important for all of us to know, because a lot of it, uh, many of us are just unaware of some of these things that happen that we are a part of, that we do, and how we make decisions, and the things we we do in our environment and how it can create a lot of risks, lethal risks for these, this particular wildlife. And many of these things I'm talking about apply to other raptor species and other, uh, other wildlife as well, and even some domestic uh, animals. So threats, first of all, threats to raptors from, uh, come primarily from humans. We are the biggest threat um, that they face. And we create the biggest threats. Uh, while all animals are subject to natural threats, such as disease and predation, raptors suffer far greater harm from human causes, including the loss of native habitat and habitat degradation, largely due to human development and mounting population, intentional and unintentional killing, for example, vehicle collisions, and poisoning, uh, including poisoning from pesticides, lead, electrocution, and climate change, to name a few of the threats. Red-shouldered hawks, like other raptor and non-raptor species, have important protections under various state and federal laws, including the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. It's under this particular law, it's unlawful to kill, capture, collect, possess, harass, buy, sell, trade, ship, import, or export any migratory bird, including their feathers, eggs, and all other parts. Uh, habitat loss and degradation is the biggest risk that raptors like red-shouldered hawks face. It's one of the reasons I believe that land trusts, which work to conserve land, can be a perfect partner in wildlife protection, and I plan to write more on that in the future. And a short while ago, I wrote... Um, a story and I produced a podcast on lead poisoning and bald eagles and those links are available on my website www.copperrangellc.com. Red-shouldered hawks face the same kind of lead poisoning risk. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about lead poisoning um, risks again because I've already written and, and produced a podcast on that but I do encourage you if you haven't uh, haven't read that yet or come across that yet to do, do please take a look at that on my website. Um, and another distressing poisoning risk that red-shouldered hawks and other raptors face is from traditional rat poison or what's also called rodenticides. Uh, many rodenticides stop normal blood clotting and these are called um, anticoagulants. Anticoagulants work by blocking an enzyme that controls blood clotting. So if an animal 
in this case, let's just say a rat or a mouse, which is often what we're using our rat poisons for, is exposed to enough anticoagulant, uh, uncontrolled bleeding and death can result. And that's actually how these rodenticides work that are the anticoagulant-based ones. So rodenticides have the same effect when eaten by any mammal, including a cat or dog, and they can also affect birds. So, you know, if um, a raptor, a cat, a dog comes across a dead mouse or a dead rat that has died because of um, the use of a rodenticide, that animal can face the same fate that that rat or mice did and become poisoned by that poison that's in what they are eating. It's just very important for us to remember that anticoagulant and other rat poison products designed to kill rodents are also killing birds of prey, pet dogs and cats, and many species of wildlife, including several endangered species. So this secondary anticoagulant poisoning of non-target animals is well documented in a wide range of animals, including owls, buzzards, coyotes, feral cats, mountain lions, otters, bald eagles, and more. Secondary poisoning, again, occurs when a predatory animal consumes a poisoned animal and then ingests the poisons secondarily. Anticoagulant rodenticides are the most common method used for rodent control worldwide, and they are frequently used in both residential and commercial areas, including parks, cemeteries, and golf courses. The National Pesticide Information Center, also called NPIC, has good advice and direction on the use of pesticides, including rat poisons. Visit my website for links, and, but let me just emphasize a couple of very important pieces of advice from the National Pesticide Information Center. You know your application area best. If you know certain spots are important places for special plants or wildlife, try to prevent contamination of those sites especially at critical times of the year. You may also contact your state wildlife agency or the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for more information. There are many federal and state laws protecting migratory birds, animals, and rare plants, but the most important protections come from ordinary people taking steps to avoid accidental harm. To reduce the risks of secondary poisoning for pets and wildlife, search for and collect and dispose of poisoned rodents. Use gloves when disposing of dead rodents to avoid contact and secure trash can lids to minimize pet or wildlife access to poisoned rodents. Again, on my website, you'll find some um, helpful links on this broad topic of anticoagulant rodenticides and secondary poisoning of non-target animals. So last but not least, on the list of risks to raptors and many birds is accidental entrapment in fishing line or netting. Many wildlife rehabilitators and conservation groups have written about these risks and documented tragic, often fatal injuries that wildlife receive from improperly discarded fishing line or netting. I've provided links to many of these on my website, including uh, some work done by and written by the Wildlife Center of Virginia, the Audubon Society, the Owl Moon Raptor Center, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. In a very odd and frightening set of circumstances, the male red-shouldered hawk of this nesting pair in Washington, D.C. became entangled in netting of some type and was found by nearby residents hanging from a tree near the nest. You can read about the details of this particular incident on my blog, 
but the very happy ending of this story is that the male was rescued through the help of nearby residents, employees of the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., a local tree trimming company, and the Owl Moon Raptor Center in Maryland. And they're a nearby raptor rehabilitator. Fortunately, the hawk dad was not severely injured, and after a few days of rest, it was deter- he was determined to be well enough to be released and was reunited with his mate. Since our young hawk family should be in the area for a good part of the summer, I'll be updating my blog posts and adding more photos as the red-shouldered hawk nestlings grow and fledge. I've been out to the nest about five times and taken hundreds of photographs and lots of video, and I encourage you to please take a look at that on my website. Again, check, check out my Instagram page. I'd love for you to visit my site and follow their progress. It's really quite a miracle that we have such a beautiful uh, pair of nesting birds and this young hawk family in our city. The topic, um, this topic of visiting the nest brings me to one of the most crucial points of my podcast and of my blog work. And this is whether you're visiting this particular nest or you're observing some other nesting wildlife And the point is, please use your judgment uh, when you're doing these activities and don't unsettle or frighten this nesting hawk pair for the sake of photographs or the desire to simply get a peek. The habitat that these hawks have chosen has many perfect features, including very high trees, open subcanopy, a beautiful stream. But there are literally people, apartments, condominiums, and noise all around nearly all the time and within easy sight of the hawks. What this probably means is that they are very acclimated to this environment and they probably won't be disturbed by too much we humans can do if they're not disturbed by what's already happening there. Still, it's crucial that anyone observing um, or photographing the nest use good judgment concerning the welfare of the hawks and their young. The highest priority here is a successful parenting outcome for this red-shouldered hawk pair and no harm done by humans. If you stop to visit or photograph the nest site, or any nest site, use your judgment and common sense. Pay close attention to whether the birds are changing their behavior or exhibiting signs of stress due to the presence or due to your presence or equipment or noises you're making or noises your kids are making or your dogs are making. Um, And if you notice that, just back off. And even if this family of hawks tolerates some noise and a few humans, um, doesn't mean that they'll tolerate um, a crowd or that their tolerance will in fact remain static. So just important for us to know that while this, this nesting pair and their young, they appear to be somewhat acclimated to city life, it doesn't mean that that won't change at some point. So thank you for listening today. Um, Again, please visit my website, www.copperrangellc.com, where you'll find links to many of the issues in today's podcast. More information, you can view my wildlife and nature images, send me an email, and keep up with my show schedule and get updates as the red-shouldered hawk family grows. I'd love for you to visit my site and follow their progress. Have a great day.